Rivers bring life, don't they? Um, countless cities around the world have been formed on rivers. On London, Paris, Washington, many cities. And uh, rivers actually don't just bring life, but actually they become... Uh, we, br- we draw stories from rivers. And many cultures around the world, probably all cultures, have, had, have stories based on rivers. Um, myths, legends, some of them. Some of them deliberately created. So if you're in Egypt, there are stories of pharaohs and sphinxes on the Nile. Uh, America, lots of stories, but one well-known one on the, the steamer on the Mississippi would be Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, wouldn't it? Uh, in India, there's uh, many famous rivers, but one, the Ganges, which is the centre of religion, of worship, and of much folklore. Many stories of gods coming down to that river. It's the centre of that culture. Uh, in South America, it might be the Amazon. And I was wondering about stories uh, in this country based on rivers. The only one I could immediately think of was Eni Blyton. Anybody read that? The River of Adventure. Yeah, a long time ago, but yeah. Still there somewhere, I think. And uh, even in the Bible as well, um, from start to finish, there are rivers uh, and seas and lakes, but I'm thinking of rivers mainly today. So in Genesis, there's a river that flows through Eden, that flows out of Eden, uh, right into, up to Revelation. Uh, there are trees based along a river. The tree of life is set on a river. And uh, last week, Jonathan, Jonathan spoke of Isaiah 43, of a new thing, Behold, I show, you, uh, I show you a new thing. Forget the former things. And then it goes on to say, I will make rivers in the wasteland and streams in the desert. And actually, even earlier in that same chapter, God says right at the start of Isaiah 43, famous words, um, Do not be afraid, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. The river will not sweep over you. Jesus himself was baptized in the River Jordan. There are many rivers throughout the Bible, and there is also this passage that we will read today in John chapter 7. Um, it's a, kind of a, a strange context, and you might think when we read this, what's going on here? What is this festival? Why is Jesus standing up and shouting on the last day? Well, we'll come to that, but let's just read the passage first. And I'm going to read um, the first few verses, and then, because it's quite long, uh, from verse 37. So at the start, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, Show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. And then there are verses. Jesus goes up to the festival of tabernacles. He teaches. He draws a crowd. He draws a lot of contention and a lot of conflict. And then from verse 37, the festival is eight days long. And on the last day, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up till that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. 
On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Ironic, because Jesus was from there. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. <clears throat> so we're going to talk about um, what this passage might mean for us as a church. But first, let's talk about what it meant for them at the time, on, the, on that day. What's going on here? What is this festival of tabernacles? What was special about the last day? Why did Jesus stand up and start crying out? So a little bit of background on this festival. It's a festival that's referred to in the Old Testament in a number of places. For Israel and even other nations, when Israel was conquered were meant to go and celebrate this festival of tabernacles. Basically, it's one of the big three. There are many festivals <coughs> in the Old Testament, but there are th- there's three big ones. There's Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Passover is around Easter time, of course. Pentecost is 50 days later. And then Tabernacles is September, October. Still celebrated. In fact, I, I googled it. And this year, it's last week of September. So last week of September... Jewish people who are um, Orthodox Jews particularly will celebrate this festival. And it's to celebrate, a tabernacle means a portable dwelling place or a tent, and it's for Israel to remember when they lived in tents, when they were brought out of Egypt, God brought them out of Egypt where they were slaves, but for many years they wandered in the desert and they had to live in tents, and God himself dwelt in a tent amongst them. God himself dwelt in a tent. And it's to remember that time, not to become too proud or too conceited or too full of themselves. God says, remember when you used to live in a tent. Now, there was a a ceremony. It was eight days long. You lived in one of these booths or tents. Today, they're quite well decorated. And for seven days, this is what happened each day, the priests will go down to the pool in Jerusalem, the pool of Siloam. They would take vessels. They'd fill them with water. And there would be a solemn procession up to the temple and they would empty the water out over the altar. Great quantities of water. The next day they'd do it again. And there was singing and feasting all this time. On the last day, well the seventh day, there's a, 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 a significant procession from the pool up to the temple and there's a festival, festival of lights as well. So, first thing to note is Jesus didn't just um, randomly start talking about water. It might look like that to us. He just stands up and starts talking about rivers. It's, it's relevant. It's, it's in context. People, were, people are seeing this. Every day, people had seen these priests go fill these vessels, drag them up to the temple and empty the water out. And Jesus would have watched this each day, each day, day after day. And on the last day, he stands up and says, let anyone, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. If anyone believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of life-giving water will flow from within him. So Jesus chose, it chooses the moments of maximum impact and maximum conflict. It's the last day. It's the big day when there's a lot of water. 
a surprising statement, but it's not a new statement either. Jesus talking about living water. He's done that earlier on in John's Gospel. Many of you will know this passage where he meets a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 at a well. Again, water. And she has a conversation with her about the water. And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, this about Jesus being living water isn't new. It's happened already. So, Jesus is basically saying, this is great. We've got this festival. It's the right thing to do. We take the water. We throw it over the altar. But there's more. There is more than this. If you're still thirsty, if you are looking for something more, come to me. If anyone desires more, come, receive God's spirit. It will flow from you. But there's a caveat, there's a condition on it. If anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, if you want more, some people may have been happy with the ceremony. And some people today may be happy with coming to church on a Sunday and the other six days not thinking about God. Ceremonially, some people are happy with that. And Jesus is saying to us today, if you want some more, if, there's, if you want more than that, come to me. So, just a li- one more, a little bit, uh, digging a little bit deeper into what did Jesus mean when he said these words to them. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What is, why would they drink this? Why would they want to drink water? Well, thirst is something we all relate to. The human soul thirsts. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, there's a God-shaped hole at the centre of every person that only God can fill. There is a thirst. People today, all of us, are, you know, we ask questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the purpose of all this? What is it all about? These are questions that, that we ask. So Jesus says, this is, this is why you would drink. It's free. There's no cost. It satisfies. It gives you purpose and direction. How do you drink? This, we might think, well, this is difficult. How do we actually drink this water? But it's very simple. Jesus says, come to me, abide with me, spend time with me, learn about me, take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Spend time with me, learn more and step out. It's not hard, the drinking bit, it's coming to Jesus, spending time. And what is this river that flows from within us? Well, the verse tells us, doesn't it? It actually says, um, by this river of water. He meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. It's God's Holy Spirit. It transforms us and it transforms all around us. It satisfies us. It gives us those things that we need in life. Purpose, direction, meaning, a reason. And you become a river maker. This river flows from within you as well, Jesus says. So this was a challenge for anyone who wanted to go further. And it did cause division, it caused conflict. Most of John chapter 7 is conflict. And you can even understand it, can't you? It might be like, for example, at a royal banquet, perhaps after the royal wedding or something. There's a great feasting going on, and some guy, some teacher stands up and says, this is fine, but if you're really hungry, come to me, because I've got much more than this. If that happened at an event, it would be embarrassing. And the leaders wouldn't know what to do. They wouldn't, they wouldn't like it. What do we do with this guy? And you would throw him out, except 
Everybody's listening to him. They said to the temple guards, why didn't you bring him in? But nobody speaks like this man. Everybody's listening to him. Can't bring him in. Okay, so that's um, a little bit of background on, on, on the events of the time and what Jesus was saying to people there. Receive the Holy Spirit. Come to me if you are thirsty. But let's move it forward now. So what could this mean for us here and now? What could these verses mean for us in Lim today? These verses, this verse, along with some other verses, uh, were given, we believe, were given to us as a church by various people in church. What, why? What does it mean for us today? So first of all, it's easy to read stuff like this and agree with it and move on, isn't it? You know, there's loads in the Bible about you are the light of the world, let your light shine before, before men. Yeah, we agree with that. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its savour, yeah, we agree with that. Be like yeast, transform. Yeah, we agree with that. And be a river of life in water. Yeah, we agree with that. But then we move on uh, because it, it's a bit hard. Um, but what does being a river, a, a river of life-giving water, what could it mean for us specifically as individuals and particularly as a church? What could that mean for us? Well, since at least July, we've been trying to work this out. And we haven't worked it out yet. We've got some ideas, we've got a vision, but now the church needs to help, needs to, we need to get together and work out what does this exactly mean. Rivers bring life, energy, vigor, community, drive, vitality. But what kind of river is God calling us to? And what would make us, what would make us into a river of life-giving water? The discussions continue. I hope um, many of you come here tomorrow night when we start to open this up and to try and uh, prayerfully discern what this means for us. And I'm just going to recap on a couple of the things that Jonathan said last week. He took the Isaiah verse, forget the former things, see I'm doing a new thing. Uh, And he made a few points, some of which I'll just summarise before we go on. First of all, one of his points was we need to main focus on community, on people. Um, That's what this is about. How can we positively impact the community that we're in, the communities that come here, the people around us? He also talked about the building briefly and said, this building isn't the point. It's not the vehicle. It's a vehicle for mission. It's not the mission. It's a way of directing the flow of this river, but it's not the river. So it can be a vehicle for mission. This can be a vehicle for for the gospel, this building, but it can't be the point of it. it. The vision isn't, there's no part of this vision that says it's about the building. It's not about the building. It is, it has to be about the people and the community. And he made a couple of other points as well. He said, um, don't get stuck thinking about this year, next year. We have to think several decades ahead. What sort of mission will this church have throughout the rest of this decade, the next decade, even the following decade? And what do we have to do? We may not even be here for that. Who knows? But what do we have to do? What is our part in God's plan? for this town, for this church, over the next decades. And lastly, he said, we need to focus on the vision and not get too sidetracked in the detail. So today, I'm going to continue to frame the discussion. Uh, So I'm not going to talk about the vision specifically. I'm just going to talk about what would it mean if God gave us a vision? 
What would it mean to have a mission to Lim? What does that mean, to have a mission to any town? And how would we know it's from God? How could we ever know that? I'm not going to talk specifically about our vision. <clears throat> so, continuing to frame the discussion, to set parameters on this discussion. So, a couple of, perhaps, key questions when we come to talk about mission and vision. How do we know what God's mission is? How could we ever know what God's mission is? And how do we know that God is asking us to do it? Because there are many things that God might want for this area. How would we know that he's asking us to do that? Let's look at those two questions generally. <clears throat> First of all, um, what is God's mission? What could God's mission be to a neighbourhood, a town, a community, a county? What would that look like? Um, several, uh, several modules that, that we've done at college over some years ago were on mission studies. And I look back at the very first uh, module we did on mission studies and the very first lecture, uh, the lecturer, who's Glenn Marshall, gave us this sheet and he said, uh, just get together in little groups. My eyes are not so good, so I'm just going to get a bit closer. And um, agree amongst yourself, is this missional? Is this God's mission? Or is it not? And I'm going to ask you a few of these. They're not, they're not uh, numbered sequentially because I took a few out. There's, there's a lot. So first of all, let me ask you, put your hand up, right? If you think that trying to attract more church members, is that God's mission? Put your hand up if you think it is. Some people, put your hand up if you think it isn't then. Do I what? Do you mean is it the only one or one No, 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 it could be so so part of God's mission, part of, not the entirety. Uh, Let me see another one. Uh, What about listening to a Muslim neighbour to explain why their religion is important to them. Could that be part of God's mission for you? What if anybody think it's not? Okay, what about, let me give you a harder one. Number, what it says number four then. Helping the local pagan society to conserve a nearby woodland ecology, but helping, doing it with the pagan society. Could that be God's mission? Who thinks it it isn't, probably isn't? Hmm, Interesting. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them, but it is interesting, isn't it? It makes you think. Because some of these are real situations, many of them. In fact, they're all real situations, actually. Uh, what about um, joining in a march to make poverty history? Is that part of God's mission? Yeah, okay, quite a few. Um, just one more. What about buying and drinking fair, fairly traded coffee, tea, and chocolates? Is that part of God's mission? Is it probably not part of God's mission? Yeah, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll discuss it later. And the point is, <laughs> it's not easy sometimes to work out what could be part of God's mission and what probably isn't. And often, uh, we make one of two mistakes. Not really mistakes, but we go to one of two extremes, often, as Christians, yeah, when we think about mission. And missional. One extreme we go to sometimes is we say, well, to be missional, you must be telling people about Jesus. You've got to do that. You've got to literally do that. Give people a Bible, a New Testament, a tract, bring them to a meeting, or it's not missional. It's not God's mission. Problem with that argument is, that's not what it says in the Bible. And if you believe that, well, you didn't get it from the Bible. Because the Bible 
One of the top two or three themes across Old and New Testaments, for example, is God's concern for the poor. It's one of the major themes that comes out throughout the Bible. God's concern for the poor, widows and orphans, the outcasts, the outsiders, the marginalized. Just look, I mean, even uh, last week we had Amos chapter 6. The whole of Amos is a book about social justice. That's all it's about. That is what it's about. And Jonathan quoted from it, and I can't remember the exact... It was a famous bit from Amos 5, uh, where God says, your worship has become a stench to my nostrils. I said, this is tough talk. But let justice flow like rivers. Let righteousness flow like a never-failing stream. Or Micah 6, where God says something very similar through Micah and says, I'm not interested in your sacrifices and your offerings and your worship and your music. I'm not interested. This is what the Lord requires of you, to walk uh, to, to walk humbly, to act justly, to love mercy. This is what the Lord requires. And one of Jesus' most scathing criticisms of the teachers of his day in Matthew 23, seven woes, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, he says. You teachers and Pharisees, woe to you. And he says, you know, you travel over land and sea to make a convert, and then you make them even more deserving of hell than you are. And he says, you give a tenth of your spices, dill and cumin, and you give a tenth of what you've got. Great. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Hypocrites. You hypocrites, he says. So, this is, I'm not saying it's not missional. I'm just saying that is an extreme version of mission that it only involves giving out Bibles and talking about Jesus. Then there's the opposite, the opposite extreme to that, where some uh, folks would say it's all about social action. It's all about doing things and helping people. And, uh, you know, if we never tell people about Jesus, well, that's okay, you know, it's just about that. The problem with that argument is the Bible does say, tell people, tell people the good news, preach, preach the good news, make disciples in Matthew 28. Very much part of our gospel, of our message has to be to tell people about Jesus. So both could be missional, and actually any of those could be missional. Let's um, try and... Um, right, I've got some definitions of mission here, right, which is from... Oh, shall I just read to you? Because it can be hard to work out what is missional and what is not missional. What is God's mission and what isn't? Um, so, for example, I won't read the authors out, but to engage in mission is to engage with culture. Mission is the intentional activity which is governed by the goal of initiating people to the kingdom of God. Mission is divine activity of sending intermediaries, whether supernatural or human, to speak or do God's will so that his purpose for judgment or redemptions are furthered. Mission theology is foundational to the process of promoting, integrating, and contextualizing the elements of Christian mission through encounter, proclamation, communion, dialogue. It is a theology characterized by fidelity as well as creativity. It is the church praying and working to further purposes of God. Some of those are long and involved and many words. But here's a really simple way, which you can all remember forever, of, try, of working out whether something is missional or not. It always works, in my experience, and it's really simple. So, is something missional? Just ask yourself three questions. Number one, what kind of God do we have? Number two, what kind of world does he want? And number three, then what kind of church do we need to be? couple of examples then. So we know that God is loving and we know that God is love and we know that God is kind. We know that. So 
does God want um, us to look after people in society who are at the edges, who are marginalised, who are perhaps very disabled or homeless? Yeah, I think he does. That, that, that goes with God's character. That must be missional. Or um, God is just. So if we know that God is just, and we do from the Bible, would such a God want to reduce the huge disparity between the rich countries and the poor countries? Would he want us to look after people who have much less than us? Would he want us to be interested in, in issues like social justice? Yeah, I think he would. I think, I think my, the, God, the God that I read of would want that. So those things are missional. God is community. God has, there's never been a time when God was alone. There's never been a time when God existed by himself. He's always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's always been community. So, second question, what would God want, would God want us to encourage community to be community, to be an attractional community? Would God want us to encourage community to be a catalyst for communities? Yeah, I think so. I think that is missional as well. So the first question, is it missional? We can work out, okay? Is something missional? We can work that out, I think, in every case. The second question, though, is a bit harder, which is, is God calling us to this mission? So, like, make poverty history is missional, but God may not be calling you to do that right now in Lim. So what, what is God calling us to do? If we know that it's missional, that's good, but is God calling us to do that? And this is, uh, we've said before, we need to work out what God wants in this town, not what we want, and then let's God, get God to rubber stamp it. Because it's easy to do that. It's easy to come up with some great ideas. I've done it before. I've thought some great idea. Oh, this would be great for the church, for this group of people. It's going to be so much better for them. And God, you get on board as well because you know it makes sense. You say, we, we think of a great idea and we, and we get, try and get God on board. But actually what we need to do is work out what is God's idea and let's get on board with that. What is God already doing in Ling? What is he already doing? What do we know he's doing? Let's get on board with that. It's not easy. The second question is not easy to discern of all the things we could do which are missional. What is the thing that God wants us to do? But we can do that. We do that through prayer, through listening, which we have been doing and which we must continue to do. We do that through discernment, through discussions inside our church we're having and outside our church. So tomorrow, Jonathan and I are going to Rising Brook another water-based church or, or, or title in uh, Stafford, where they do what they call community chaplaincy in their building. And, and they're a, a, a case study of that. Several people have told me how well they do their community chaplaincy. Um, I, went, I was at St. John's Nutsford uh, before Christmas, who also do, who are working in their building in the community. So we can look outside as well. What else has God done? and learn from that. And it needs to be leadership and church. It needs to be both. Um, we, could, we, can, we can make two mistakes again as a, as a leadership. Uh, when I was at Bramwell Baptist Church, probably seven or eight years ago, on the eldership there, we got criticised. Uh, leaders get criticised. There's nothing new about that. But we got criticised and people said to us, 
some people said, why don't you come up with a vision? Why, that's your job. What does leadership mean except to give us a vision for the church? Our pastor is leaving. We need to look beyond that. What's the vision for Bamboo Baptist Church? And the opposite extreme <laughs> is we could say, why have the leaders forced this vision on us and made us do this? So we need to find the right balance. It's both, isn't it? And it doesn't just have to be leadership. We're looking for discernment from our body of, uh, of members, of attenders. That's our theology. Every member ministry, priesthood of all believers, is Baptist theology. It has to be a joint process. So, lastly, so we've talked a little bit about uh, the Festival of Tabernacles and what Jesus did in rivers of living water. And then I've talked about what could that mean in general terms. What is God's mission? What does it mean? And how would we know that that's what God wants us to do? And then lastly, let's just look about how we could get this wrong and get it right. And let's talk about rivers again. So, lastly, what does God's mission look like here? And again, I'm not going to be specific about whatever is in our vision statement. These are general ideas, general principles to frame the discussion. Okay? How could we get this wrong? Let's go back and look at some rivers. The dried up river. The dried up river is where we just ignore any vision because we're all right. Things are going quite well. There's a good number of people on a Sunday. Band, is, band sounds great. Preaching's okay. Well, do, why do we need a vision? This is one thing we could think. Why do we need a vision? But rivers dry up. The flow weakens. Examples of churches today, you know churches today, where they were alive and living and growing and now there's, you know, a dozen people who are mainly over 65. Uh, the whole of the Methodist church, I can't remember the date, but the prediction is by 2050 or 2030, it will disappear in this country. It will go. Because if you look at the demographics of people in that church, it, it will die. So we do know of churches where death has come <laughs> through complacency where dryness has come. And there are examples in Scripture where churches through complacency, um, God handed them over to that complacency. You know the churches of Revelation, or at least you know that in Revelation there are seven churches. Uh, the book of Revelation is written to those seven churches. Um, today, every single one, they are in cities, major cities of the New Testament, major cities, and there were major influence in those cities. Today, every single one of those cities is Islamic. Every single one without exception. Ephesus, Pergamon, Smyrna, Laodicea, Philadelphia, the other two, every single one is Islamic. Now, we use Revelation to look forward, but we can also use the Bible to look back. And it was complacency. If you look at the, at the reasons that God has against these churches in the first chapters of Revelation... The common theme to me is complacency. You're not hot or cold, he says to one church. You're neither hot nor cold, you're just lukewarm. To another church, he says, you look like you're alive, but inside, you're dead. Your worship might sound great, your preaching might be great, but inside, you're dead, I can see that. This is a warning. So, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that at any time soon, Lim is going to become an Islamic town, 
But don't laugh, because they would have said that. They would have said that in the New Testament. They would have said the same thing over time. What I, what I would say is here, the risk, is very much secularization. Very much secularization, completely, and, and we're blind if we don't see that. The secular agenda is no faiths are allowable. It's not acceptable to talk about faith at all in the public square. It's not politically correct. It's intolerant. You cannot even bring up the topics of faith. That is a re- real risk that we have if we are complacent. That is an agenda that is out there. It's been driven by secularists, not actually by Muslims. So there are towns in Britain today where they're not allowed to have a Christmas tree because the council says, well, it's not right to all other religions. And we're not going to call it Christmas, we're going to call it Wintertide. And it's not the Muslims that are complaining about it. Actually, it's the secular council that are doing that. So there are risks with complacency of drying up. And uh, let us not be there. Let us not, when the people write the history of this place in years to come, let them not say that we were complacent. Thank God that today we are not here. But let's not be complacent. The second kind of uh, risk that we face, the second way of getting this wrong, is the stagnant flow. Where we just get caught up in so much toing and froing and detail that we don't flow anywhere. The flow stops. We lose the idea of a vision and we immediately jump into the detail and say, well, what about this? I had a conversation this week, good lengthy conversation, good-natured, and uh, the person I was having it with, it was all about why uh, the kitchen, a kitchen, couldn't be moved to the end of that room, Ridgeway. And my point was, nobody's moving a kitchen to the end of that room in Ridgeway. You may have seen a plan that said we could do this and we could do that and, and for cost purposes, but, but that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. Uh, we, or in, in companies, they call it analysis paralysis, don't they, where you start analysing the details so much, you never do anything. You just get bogged down with issues of money, issues of commitment and time, what does this mean for me? Why I'm, too bu- I'm so busy already. And change. We don't like change. I don't like change either. Change is difficult. We complete on a house in Lim this week, which is great, but change is, is, is difficult. I don't like changes. But change, sometimes we're called to embrace change. Surely, th- those are important questions. Money, time, and change are all important. But you know what? They're all the wrong question. To start with, surely the question is, is God in this? Isn't that the only question? Isn't that the only question? In this vision, is this of God? Is this of God? I mean, I, what would we have done if people in the Bible had worried about money, time, and change? What would we have done in... In Genesis 12, when God said to Abraham, go to a country which I will show you. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. For Abraham, said, well, it's going to cost a lot, that Lord. Or um, time when, Peter, when uh, Jesus says to Simon, Peter, and Andrew, sorry, Simon and Andrew, in, uh, in the boat in Luke 5, they've been fishing all night. And Jesus said, now go out into deeper water and let down your nets. And what if they said, well, we haven't really got time. We've been here all night. I'm so glad they didn't. Or with Paul in Acts 9, uh, where he was asked to change. He was 
God met him on the road to Damascus and said, I am Jesus and you persecute and I want you to serve me. And Paul was a Pharisee, a Pharisee, top of the tree. Knew the law better than anybody. He had status, significant status. He could have said, well, you want me to change and become one of them. These issues are, are, are not unimportant. They are important, but they are not the first question. The first question is, Lord, is this you? Is this you? That's the question we need to focus on now. Because stagnant water doesn't flow. And there are churches in the New Testament who didn't flow, who got stuck in discussions and arguments. We know about them. And again, thank God we are not here. Thank God we are not here. But let's not be complacent. And then the third way of getting this wrong, still on rivers, is the polluted river or the diseased river where we could fall out. We, could, we, might, we may have the right intentions to start with, but we fall out in disagreement. And we point fingers and we uh, blame others. We say, if only they agreed with me, if, why are they going on about that situation or that room or whatever it is? Why, why don't they agree with me? Why, what about my, the thing that I really want in this vision? I, I, I really want that, but that seems to be some, somehow minimised, so I'm not happy about it. But together, we, need to, we all need to hold this lightly the leaders as well who've, who've been involved in this from the start, we all need to hold this lightly and work out what is God saying to us because we could end up in a situation of falling out. And unresolved petty squabbles always grow, always grow into disunity. In fact, well, no, I'm not going to that. Um, until, okay, I will, because now you want to know what I was going to, the thought that came, well, the thought that came because I don't want to keep going on about buildings, but the building is one of the elements in this vision that could be a vehicle. And all I was going to say, which I will say now, is that one of the top four reasons for conflict in churches is the building. One of the top four reasons that, that, that churches fall out and split is the building. Let's just be aware of that before we go into this. Until there is more pollution than water, and pollution doesn't, polluted water doesn't bring life, brings death. Examples in scripture, church at Corinth, looking at them this year. So many arguments about food offered to idols, about who we let into the church, about how we do communion. Thank God that we are not here either. We're not there. This is a united church. But let's not be complacent as we, as we step into this. So we could get this wrong, but do you know what? We could really get this right. And we could really see God do something here, which we've not seen before. So with God's help... What happens if we get this right? With God's help, what happens if we get this right? Well, rivers bring life, community. They're places of refreshing. They restore arid and dry places. They bring community. A river could be divided into two. And maybe, maybe we need to discern that's what we're being called to do. And to have a, a new river go into a new place where there is no river, where there's only dryness today. That does affect us. You know, the initial flow, the main flow of the river reduces, doesn't it, when you split a river? But it can grow back. With God's help, it can grow back. Rivers can carry the power of what's driving them. The Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, that's what he was talking about. And rivers are amazing to watch. They're exciting. They bring life, vitality. Just going to end um, quickly. There's uh, some years ago, there's a, a young lad who, who worked out in the country. It was the beginning of last century. And um, he'd never seen an event or a show 
or a spectacle in his life. He worked hard on the farm. And one day, he saw a poster that said, the circus is coming to town. He'd never seen a circus in his life. He saw the pictures, it looks amazing. So he went home and said, Dad, can I go to the circus? It's a shilling. It's 5p for pre-1973. His dad said, well, if you work hard and get all your chores done on Saturday, by lunchtime, you can go to the circus. So on Saturday morning, that little lad worked really hard, got all his work done. Lunchtime, he turned up in his best Sunday best outfit because he didn't know what else to wear. He said, Dad, I'm ready. I've done all my work. Can I go to the circus? His dad put, put, put his hand in his pocket, put that shilling, said, take care, come straight back. The little lad ran all the way to the town. He was so excited, never seen an event in his life. As he approached the town, he could hear music and he could see lights and he could see colour and he could see people. He thought, what's going on? And he ran into the town. The streets were filled. The circus was coming to town. It was the parade of the circus coming into town. He stood and pushed his way to the front. It was amazing. There was lions and tigers snarling in cages. There was, there was ladies standing atop two ponies waving at the crowds. There were groups of dwarfs leaping and doing acrobats or acrobatics all over each other. There was a band playing trumpets and bugles and big bass drum. And then right at the back of the whole procession, which was amazing, was a, a half a dozen clowns. They were clowning around, throwing wet sponges at each other, pretending to throw water at the, at the crowd, bantering. And they were collecting money as well, change from people. And as the clown came past the little lad, the little lad was just amazed at this spectacle. He put his hand in his pocket, pulled out the shilling, put it into the hat. And he turned around with a massive grin on his face and ran all the way home. What's wrong with that story? He never saw the thing that he thought he was going to see. Now, we may have seen things, and we, I hope we have seen things in our Christian lives. We've seen God at work, but there is so much more. There is so much more that we haven't seen. There is so much more that God wants to do. But God says, those first lines that Jesus said, the first words, if you are thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, are we thirsty? God always has more for us, but we need to be thirsty. Let's pray. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of life-giving water will flow from within him. Lord, we are thirsty. We want more. We want to see you do more. We want to see you do more in our time, in our town, in this place. Lord, we, would you make us, Father, into that river? And would you keep us, Lord, from being the dry river, the stagnant river, the polluted river? Help us, Lord. Guide us, we pray, in these things, in Jesus' name. Amen.